Uh, please take your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, as many of you know, um, Advent is my favorite time of year. This is one of my most favorite times, and I want to I explain why as we kind of begin here today, especially for those that might not have been at our church during an Advent season. And so if you have never been with us um, over a season like Advent, I want to explain kind of what is happening, okay? Let me begin by reminding you of the meaning of Advent. Advent means coming, okay? It is the season that we celebrate the coming of Christ. It is the fulfillment of our longing, our expecting, and our hoping as God's people. It is both a remembrance of what has happened and an expectation of the future. Advent symbolizes our present situation as God's people as we continue now to wait on Christ's return. Just like Old Testament Israel, just like they waited 400 years in Egypt for a deliverer, and then they waited 40 years in the wilderness to come into the promised land, and they waited 70 years to return from exile from Babylon, and they awaited ever since Genesis 1, a coming Messiah. Today, what we do is we look back, remembering Christ's first advent, 2000, some 2,000 years ago, and now we join with all of God's people today who continue to wait on Christ's return. That's the meaning of advent. But advent also, there should be wonder with Advent, okay? Like being drawn, I've said this every year, like being drawn to the light and beauty of a flickering candle. I don't know if you ever just sat in a dark room and watched a candle. Advent has a way, or should have a way, of awakening in us an appreciation for the glory, the wonder, and the mystery of our faith. We should wonder and gaze at it and think about it and ponder it and be moved by it. Um, like coming home late at night from the grocery store with both arms full of sacks, you're tired, dragging your kids behind you. All you can do is think about sleep and then you happen to look up at a clear night sky and it pulls you in that moment and reminds you of the glory of God all around you. It has a way of letting you see through everything and really seeing what matters. And we should do the same thing in our lives. We should be drawn away during this season from the hustle and bustle, and we should pause, take a deep breath, look up at the glory of God, and be amazed at the wonder and mystery that Christ has come in a manger. The God-man has come to us. Advent is a time for us to think about the eternal longings of our heart and find satisfaction in Christ. As C.S. Lewis said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So during this season, think about the longings of your heart that this world can't satisfy and remember that's because you were made for another world. And then the importance of habits. The importance of habits. Advent is a habit. 
It is a tradition, a ritual that we engage in. Life is liturgy. Now that is hard for all of us that grew up in Baptist churches where we don't really engage in a lot of historical Christian liturgy. Other denominations do this better than us. There's a rich history of liturgy among Episcopalians and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans that they capture this much better. And so I'm trying to do my job as a pastor to help you understand the richness of liturgy and of habits. Our lives, by the way, are more than our habits, but they're never less than our habits. We all live with rituals and routines and habits and traditions. And habits and traditions are how we display what is most important to us. Think about it. In our world, we solemnize everything we care about with liturgy. From baby dedications to baptisms to graduations to marriage to funerals. All of those, all of those are ceremonies they, they ceremonialize. I can't even say that word correctly. But they're liturgies that show us what's important. For the Christian, liturgies, quite they, they, liter, they literally bring to life the reality of our beliefs. Our habits and rituals bring our ideas and our beliefs to life. All of us should have memories of ki- as kids growing up. Um, with your family, traditions and habits that, that, that mean something to you and they awaken things in you. So our goal during Advent is to help all of us put in place habits that mold our desires and affections towards Jesus. As W.T. Ellis said, it is Christmas in the heart that puts Christmas in the air. So when Christmas is in our heart, it comes to life. It comes to life by our liturgies and by our habits. And then the theme of Advent has been mentioned earlier. Um, We have a theme for Advent as I choose a theme every year. And this year, for the next few weeks, our theme is lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. The The subtitle is the transforming power of seeing Jesus by faith. So that's my point. The Bible is clear that as we see Jesus by faith, we are transformed in one way or another. As we lift up our eyes and see Jesus, not look down, not look within, look up to Jesus. As we do that, we are transformed in one way or another. Either we will be transformed more into His image as we love Him, serve Him, long for Him, or we will be hardened and move more and more into the darkness of our own hearts and our own sin. Remember, the same sun that melts and softens wax will harden clay into bricks. So as you see Jesus, you're either going to be softened and melted and conformed into His image, or you're going to run into the darkness and your heart will become even harder. It's going to happen one way or the other. So Jesus said that clearly in John 1, that we will either come to the light or we will love darkness and remain in it. So over the next few weeks, let us all lift up our eyes on Jesus. And be transformed by His power and grace. So let's turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to read verse 18, which is our theme verse for the next five weeks. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of His Word. The good news for you today is I have two points. Amen. Two. Okay, so we want to walk through this text together, and I want to talk about beholding Jesus. So the first is I want you to see that Paul is going to argue here for the for all of this chapter about a new and better covenant. A new and better covenant. Here in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is arguing about the differences between the old covenant, the Old Testament, the law, and the greater glories of the new covenant. Paul's point is that with Christ's advent, he comes bringing a new covenant in his blood. And with that, Christ has unleashed this new era, this new age, where the transforming power of the Spirit has been given to all believers. So all of chapter 3 is a comparison between the old and new covenant. So look back at verses 1, to, 1, 1 through 3. Okay, now we're going to walk through the chapter. Look back at verses 1 through 3. Paul says this. He says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you? Or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are the letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now notice Paul's point in verse 3. The Corinthians, Paul says, are Paul's letter from Christ. But this letter isn't written with ink or on tablets of stone like the Old Testament law. It's written by the Spirit of God on tablets of human hearts. Paul says that the Corinthians are living proof of the power of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant, by the way, going back to Jeremiah 31, was that God would do something different in the new covenant. That He would not give them the law written on tablets of stone like He gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. No, in the new covenant, God says, I will write my law on your heart. That I will take out a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. So the glory, of the, new, the glory of the new covenant is that God's Spirit changes hearts. That God writes His law on our hearts and it replaces hard, stony, rebellious hearts with soft, humble, repentant hearts of flesh. Now look at verses 4 through 11. Paul says, he continues, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Notice the contrast. Now, in the, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now notice the language here that Paul chooses to use to describe the Old Covenant. Pay attention. At the end of verse 6, speaking of the Old Covenant, he says the letter kills. The Old Covenant kills. Then he calls it in verse 7, the ministry of death. It kills, it brings death. And then he calls it the ministry of condemnation in verse 9. So, if you ask Paul to describe the Old Covenant, he says, it kills, it brings death, and it brings condemnation. What Paul means is that the Old Testament law had a certain purpose. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament law was meant to do something. It was meant to show you God's holiness... God's righteous standard and show you your sin in light of it. And by the way, it does an excellent job. This is God's standard and you can't meet it. You are a sinner. You are are accountable to God and brought under condemnation. As Paul says in Romans 3 and in in chapter Romans 3 and Romans 7, the law was given for a purpose. It was given to make the whole world guilty. The law was written so that all of you, including me, all of us would be guilty and accountable to God. And the law stipulates that the wages of sin is death and condemnation. Now what the law, the law could not do something. The law could show you your sin, but it could not change your sinful stony heart. It could simply point it out to you. Just like a speed limit sign. We've driven by hundreds of them, right? If you drive, you drive by a speed limit sign, it can't change your speed. All it can do is go, hey, you're breaking the law. That's what it does. That's what happens. So the law in the Old Testament could not change your heart. All it could say was, hey, lying, that's sin. Hey, stealing, that's sin. Hey, worshiping idols, that's sin. Hey, greed, that sin. Hey, lust, that sin cannot change our hearts. So, look what else Paul says about the law in verses 7 and 11. Paul says that the old covenant was being brought to an end. It was temporary. It was always meant to point us to a far greater and far more glorious covenant. Now, sure, Paul says the old covenant had glory, right? That it had a certain glory. It actually caused Moses' face to shine. It came with the law. It came with God's temple services. It came with the sacrifices and all of the things that made Old Testament Israel unique. But Paul is crystal clear that its glory is far lesser than the glory that comes in the New Covenant. In fact, it could not even be compared to it. That the Old Covenant was temporary, and verse 11 says that the New Covenant, by contrast, is permanent. The old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. That's what it brought. The new covenant was a ministry of righteousness, where God accounted righteousness to us through Christ. The old covenant was based on the letter of the law that brought death, verses 6 through 8. 
The new covenant is called the ministry of the Spirit, verse 8, that brings life, verse 6. Do you notice the contrast? One brings death and kills by the letter. The other brings life by the Spirit of God and righteousness. One far surpasses the other. And now look at verses 12 through 14. And Paul says this. He says, since we have such a hope, a new covenant hope, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses, the law, the Old Covenant is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now here is the main problem again with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant can show you our sin. Can show you your sin. The Old Covenant can also harden your heart and bring condemnation. But you know what it doesn't do? It cannot bring you into the presence of God. The Old Covenant cannot allow you into the presence of God. Now Paul uses Moses here as an example when God would meet with him in the tent of meeting and Moses' face would shine. Moses was allowed to speak with God and that would cause his face to shine from the glory of God's presence. Here's the issue. Moses got to see it, but nobody else did. Nobody else was welcome. God kept them from seeing what this was really about. God kept them from seeing that the purpose of their rescue from Egypt, the purpose of their exodus, and the purpose of the law, and the very purpose of Moses was to point them to a new and better covenant. The law put a veil, not just on Moses' face so they couldn't see the glory of it, but it also put a veil on their hearts. And Paul says that it continues to harden their minds and hearts. Each week, when they get up and read the law in a synagogue, it does not bring them spiritual light or life, but instead it just shows them their own darkness and hardness. Jesus' advent that we celebrate now, it brings with it a vastly superior and far better covenant. And that truth is something that you should ponder and gaze upon this season. A far better covenant. A far better covenant. And second, beholding and becoming. Beholding and becoming. Look at verses 16 through 18. This is what Paul says. He says, but, the transition, the contrast, but when one turns to the Lord, Jesus, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into His same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, let's, let's look at how Paul connects this glorious new covenant 
with the promise and power of being transformed by the Spirit as we behold Jesus. That's the connection you have to make. We are transformed by the Spirit into Christ's image as we look to Him by faith. Follow Paul's argument here. First, Paul says that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's verse 16. When, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when we come to Christ by faith, when you behold Christ by faith, when you hear the gospel of grace and you look on Jesus by faith, at that moment, the veil is removed and you can finally see the purpose and plan of what the old covenant was really about. We see all of God's word in its right context in its proper light all of a sudden the old testament reveals the glory and light of jesus all of those promises in the old covenant find their fulfillment in jesus who is the seed of the woman the promised serpent crusher the true son of abraham the lion of the tribe of judah he is the the root of jesse the descendant of david he's the promised messiah in christ He's Emmanuel, the hope of the nations. Jesus, who is the light of the world, shines His light on His Word because the darkness of the veil is removed. Second, when we come to Christ, Paul says that we have hope and boldness, according to verse 12. We have hope and boldness. Now here's the difference. Listen, unlike Old Testament Israel, who was terrified of, of God's presence, and rightfully so. They were terrified of God's presence, and rightfully so. Go read the story of, uh, go read a couple stories in the Old Testament of people who rushed into God's presence in the wrong way. We have hope and boldness to come before God in Christ. Notice the emphasis that Paul says it's we. We have hope. We have boldness. Those of us in Christ, we all, all of us, get to come into the presence of God through Christ. Not just Moses. Not just Moses. All of us. It is Jesus who brings all of us to God so that we can see Him face to face. We no longer have the restrictions that we can only go into the Holy of Holies once a year by the blood of bulls and goats through a high priest. No, that restriction has been done away with. We have no fear of being struck down for entering God's presence. No. In Christ, we are not only safe. We are invited to boldly come into His presence as sons and daughters. The Old Covenant doesn't offer the hope of us being sons and daughters. God is no longer to be met in a tabernacle or met in a temple behind a curtain. We now meet God in the hearts of those who love Him and call Him Father. We get to meet God meets with us in our hearts, not in some temple somewhere. We have hope and boldness. Third, we come to behold the glory of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 18. We all with unveiled faces, not like Moses, we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. We are to see Jesus. 
the very glory of God, the exact representation of His nature, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, the image of the invisible God, the incarnate Word, the Son of God. And when the veil is removed, we see Jesus by faith and are transformed into His image. And that's the whole point of this series, by the way. Write it down. Beholding is becoming. We become like what we behold. So see Jesus. Lift up your eyes and see His glory. As A.W. Tozer said in his famous book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just think about that sentence the rest of this afternoon. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or debased as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He says this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Did you hear that? We tend to move by a secret law of the soul towards our mental image of God. Let me say it in layman's terms. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. Psalm 115.8 Psalm says those words. Speaking about idols, it says, those who make them become like them. If you make an idol, you will become like it. It's deaf, you will become deaf. It's mute, you will become mute. Paul makes that same point in Romans 1, where he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then look what happened. They become like what they worshipped. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They became like what they worshipped. So just think of how that looks with our own sin and our own idolatry. In the Christmas season, go watch the story about Ebenezer Scrooge who is consumed by money and greed and he becomes what he worships. Or think about in our culture, Hugh Hefner. He worshipped sex and he became what he worshipped. Or fame, you can go look at the Kardashians or any others. Or Hitler with the worship of power and imperialism. Or pride, Satan. You become what you worship. This is becoming what you worship and what you give yourself to. It will consume you and destroy you. Or as my favorite illustration, Lord of the Rings, Gollum, who is consumed by the ring and it destroys, the ring consumes anyone who puts it on. It's a symbol of sin. Now look at verse 18 again. Hey, what Paul's point is. Paul's point in verse 18 
And we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into its image from one degree of glory to another. Paul's point is that when we behold Jesus by faith, when we lift up our eyes and gaze on His beauty and His glory, we are transformed into His image. And I will make it even stronger. When we see and behold Jesus by faith, you must be transformed. There is no other option. You cannot see Jesus. You cannot behold His glory and be unmoved or unchanged. You become like what you worship. So here it is saying it as strong as possible. If you claim to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus who has looked on Jesus by faith and your life has not been changed, you have not seen the Jesus of the Bible. It's like saying I got hit by a log truck and walked away perfectly fine. If you get hit by a log truck, everybody's going to know. You don't get hit by a log truck and your life not be changed dramatically. And Jesus is far more powerful than a log truck. Listen, you cannot see Jesus. You cannot behold His glory and be unmoved or unchanged. You become like what you worship. And it will either be like the sin of your idols or like the image of Jesus. You will either be conformed to this world and consumed by it, or you will be conformed to Christ and consumed by Him. And lastly, I want you to know that this transformation, this transformation is accomplished by the Spirit who is unleashed by the advent of Christ and the giving of the new covenant. Notice that Paul says in the passive voice, we are being transformed. It's happening to us. We are passive. It is the Spirit of God working in us to accomplish this. This is an ongoing process of sanctification where we're being where we're being saved from the power of sin so that we can walk in the freedom of the spirit according to verse 17 the spirit gives us freedom from condemnation and the slavery of sin so that you can instead love Jesus serve Jesus obey Jesus and be made like Jesus that's what the spirit does transforms us by producing the fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, here as I close, let me say it as plainly as possible. Christian, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Not just this Advent season, though I encourage you to do it this Advent season. Fix your eyes on Him every day. Because if your eyes are transfixed on Jesus, you will be transformed by Jesus. So my question is, do you know Him? In this room, do you know Jesus? Has the veil over your mind and your heart been removed? Has the darkness been exchanged for the glory of the light of Jesus? Are you able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? Or are you continuing to walk in the darkness and the hardness of your heart? Lift up your eyes and behold Jesus. 
See the Lamb of God who has come to take away your sin. Come today for light and life in Christ. Christian, are you fixing your eyes more on Jesus or more on this world? Because you're going to be transformed and conformed more to the image of one or the other. Are your eyes increasingly more fixed on Jesus or more on the world? Lift up your eyes again on Jesus. Lift up your eyes on Jesus. Do not look within. Do not look down. Look up on Jesus. See Him by faith. Fall on Him by faith. And be transformed into His image. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word. Father, we ask that this Advent season that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus. That we would look full in His glorious face. And we would be transformed from, into His image from one degree of glory to another. We pray this all in Christ's name.